Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and each week on the podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to uncover the stories of how things got made and the unsung heroes who make them. This week on the podcast, we have Ryan Barnett, who is the host of a podcast called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North. And on each season of the show, he's going to tell the story of how an iconic piece of Canadian content got made. So in his first season, he talks all things kids in the hall, which is obviously incredibly timely with the new Amazon series from the kids in the hall. And also for me, because I have the showrunner of the kids in the hall, the new Amazon series, Gary Campbell coming on next week. So it's kind of the first part of a two-parter that is very kids in the hall centric. So in this episode, we of course talk a lot about the kids in the hall and their lasting impact, but we also talk a little bit about uh, podcasting and getting started and uh, Ryan gives some advice to people who want to produce a show that is more highly produced than say my show. Uh, So lots of interesting tidbits. If you're a fan of Kids in the Hall, please come back next week to hear my interview with Gary Campbell. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Starting off, I want to talk all about your amazing first season, all about the Kids in the Hall, but I'm really curious to know what inspired you to found uh, Knockabout Media. What led me to, to starting my own company was uh, the pandemic. Um, it was early on in the pandemic. I was working as an in-house producer for a company and uh, that job went away. Um, so I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, uh, as you know, I have a little one. Um, so I said, okay, well, how am I going to make a living? And I was in the position where I was kind of doing a rarefied job and that I was doing kind of all aspects of production. I really liked that aspect of, of what I was doing. I liked that I could touch every piece of the projects I was working on. And you don't really see those jobs posted anywhere. I, I didn't see any equivalent uh, job to what I was doing, and certainly not at the um, at the level I was doing it. So I just said, okay, well, I'm going to go into business for myself. Um, what can I do? Well, I'm I'm good at video production and I'm good at audio production. So you know, this will be the this will be the company that I'm launching. And you know, as I said to you before. I was working in the cultural sector, so I was trying to think of a way to kind of define myself, and and the the most succinct way I could think was that that we specialize in creative nonfiction. That's interesting. So then, in terms of you always in everything that you do, looking at your resume, there seems to be an element of history, and especially Canadian history. Yeah. So it seemed natural to me that you would pick an iconic Canadian story to enter the podcast space. But, you know, what was it specifically about wanting to tell uh, CanCon stories in a podcast format that inspired you for your podcast? I think part of it's nostalgia. I mean, one of the things we do on the podcast is we feature old pieces of Canadian ephemera, audio ephemera that uh, Retro Ontario has been really nice about just supplying, supplying to us. So I think a big part of it's nostalgia uh, I think 
it was also a lack of lack of content in that space. So, you know, podcasts that really inspired me were ones like American Innovation, um, some of the stuff that that Wondery was doing a few years ago, um, where, you know, you could hear a, a short series on the making of this was at Wondery, this was The Ringer, but Halloween. So you'd hear like a six episode series on the making of Halloween. So that kind of thing really inspired me. But I was trying to figure out what's a space that people aren't really doing things on. And, you know, I thought, well, it's natural that I've been working in Canadian history for so long. Why don't I do Canadian media history? It, so basically it, it started with following my interests. So what do I like in Canadian media history? Well, I like the kids in the hall. Uh, season two is David Cronenberg. I like David Cronenberg. So, so what is it that I can I can uh, get into researching and get into writing about for the next you know two months or however long it takes me to put together a series? So for me, the kids in the hall was the the no brainer. It, it it was the no brainer first step for the series, but at the same time, I felt like is it too mainstream? Do should I do something that people don't know a lot about? But but the response has been really great, and it's, uh, I think it was the right first step. And I mean, the timing couldn't have been better in terms of uh, Amazon, their, their new Amazon show coming out. I wanted to go back to your point about there being such a lack of Canadian storytellers covering these stories, because I think that it's so true. And we have so many rich examples, as you've just mentioned, of these iconic Canadian productions and, and really cool moments in history that are very under discussed or I mean, at least people know about them, but they haven't spent the same time to develop them in the same way that you see at a place like Wondery um, that just have more resources. And so I really love the way that you put this podcast together as a narrative uh, format and you, it's really heavily produced and it's so interesting the way that you put it together. What was your, your process like getting it all together? It started with an idea, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago or something. And it took me a really long time to write the first episode, um, a really long time. And my, my initial plan was write a bank of episodes, produce them and then release it. Um, but it hasn't turned out that way. I'm literally writing week to week, um, so, uh, which I don't plan on doing on the next one because it's a bad way to go because I've, I haven't really met my delivery um, goals uh due to things like uh you know my daughter will be home for 10 days because there's a covid outbreak or things like that so it's just like it throws everything off so i knew i wanted to create something that for me um which is different from what you do you you talk to people i didn't want it's not that i didn't want to talk to people but it's more that it's a writing it's a writing exercise for me um i wanted to be i wanted to have a project that had me regularly writing because like I said, writing books, you know, I, I published my first book in 2017 and I have my second book done now, but it's five years. Yeah, well, I said five years, right? It's five years later <laughs> and it's, you know, sitting on a shelf waiting for a publisher to pick it up. And um, so I wanted to be writing in between those times. And I so there was that. So I knew I wanted it to be a writing exercise. And then in terms of the the actual production process and as you said it's it's a it's a heavily produced show i just thought about what i like to listen to i didn't want to do a radio drama because i think radio dramas can be cheesy so it's it's not doesn't quite veer over that far um, i mean they're like basically what i like to do is if there's short conversations i'll do that but i do place settings for 
foreseen. So, you know, if they're in a diner, I'll have it have the narration happening while you hear diner noises and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I also got really lucky uh, it, it, when you, you know, if any of your listeners of your show now go to my show, I want to say if you listen to episode one to episode, I think three, there's a there's a jump in production value. So <laughs> so make it through episode one, um, <laughs> which was the learning episode. And then and then you'll see, you know, everything that I that I learned, which also includes the the bringing on my brother to do any of the um, character voices. And it was just one of these things that I was over at his house and he was reading books to our our kids. And I was like, oh, he's really good at voices. So I wonder, I wonder if he could do this. You know, and he's pulled out, he's pulled out, you know, Lorne Michaels impressions. Um, he, uh, he, do, he, in the last episode, he did a great Scott and great Kevin impression. And um, in this next one, uh, he has to do Quentin Tarantino. And I, and I texted him the other day and said, uh, you better brush up on your Quentin Tarantino impression. He's like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> but uh, um but i just i just wanted something that that was kind of immersive in the way that you know american innovations or the, the other wondery stuff or the the stuff that i liked listening to was and um i just love media ephemera too so so to include the you know the fake they're not fake commercials i'm not they're fake in that i'm not making money off of them but i have commercial breaks that have old commercials in them because I just love that stuff. I love being able to present that to a listening audience. And I hope that people enjoy it too. I hope, you know, I assume they enjoy it. Definitely. I, I'm someone who always fast forwards through the commercials, but I never did in, in your show because they took you back into a moment in history that you may have forgotten about, which was really fun. I remember the one about the sky dome in particular. I also try to link, I don't know if you've noticed, but where with, with the kids in the hall one where we are in the story so if it's 1983 the commercials are from that period if it's 1990 the commercials are from that period it's interesting how you balance it because it's like you said you're not trying to be a radio play but you still are able to capture the full immersive experience without being too kitschy i guess is the best way to describe it for those people who are listening who are maybe not as familiar uh, with the kids in the hall, can you give them the elevator pitch on what's special about them and who they are? Um, the kids in the hall are a, a group of uh, five guys from um, from Canada who had a sketch show in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, at the time, it was unlike anything on TV. They weren't super successful in their day, but as a result of syndication and, and uh, the comedy network, uh, they proved to be an influential voice in comedy um, following decades. And can you articulate that a little bit more of their, what legacy they went on to have? Sure. Um, well, I mean, you see it, the, there's a documentary coming out too. You see, you know, people like uh, Mae Martin or uh, Nathan Fielder, um, Seth Rogen, all these people talk about growing up. And, and you know, Seth Rogen is the same age as me, so... I remember these uh, going home and watching the kids in the hall uh, after high school. And, and again, it being like, unlike anything on TV, even doing this, even doing this series right now, watching um, certain sketches and, and just being baffled about how that was ever aired on CBC television 
in the early 90s. Like there's there's one episode uh, or one sketch rather where uh, Scott, who who's the one gay member of the group, um, like the the premise of the uh, of the sketch is that Scott's not gay anymore. And this and the rest of the troupe is really disappointed because it was like their hook. Like people recognize them because they had the gay member. And, you know, Mark comes in and he has a whole bunch of like whole bunch of, um, you know, buttons and stickers and and other memorabilia that he had just had produced based around this idea that Scott was gay. And it's a really funny sketch. But then it ends it ends with 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 Scott uh, getting uh, getting a blowjob um, by by a man at the end. And you're just like, this is on at nine o'clock on CBC. Like, what? what? is this so yeah it was one of these really i don't i honestly don't even know well i do know because we wrote the series and i knew that they had a fan at the cbc at the time who was in a high position and he was able to put them put them in there but it was really they 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 were just kind of this lightning in a bottle group that that just happened to find a window that got them on tv and then you know like i said because of syndication were discovered you know every five years or so by kind of a new generation of comedians that I'm assuming had the same reaction as I did of what you can do that. Like that's a thing that you can do and put on television. So can you talk about specifically what their impact was into the Canadian comedy scene? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Canada has a great comedy tradition and, and, you know, there was a period too where our, our, you know, our greatest export was our comedians, um, like that whole SCTV crew, um, you know, going on to make films, whether, you know, John Candy having a huge movie career or, you know, Martin Short then going from SCTV to a season on SNL um, and then having a movie career himself. Uh, there was a period in the, the, the 80s and 90s where, you know, Hollywood, you could, you know, you could throw a rock and you'd hit a Canadian comedian. The kids in the hall had a bit of a different trajectory though, in that they always stayed in Canada. So their, their show, you know, was on CBC, but it was, it was also co-produced by HBO. So they had an American presence, but they were producing it here. Um, and they were, they had a following, but they weren't hugely popular. They, you know, they weren't part of the zeitgeist. I think the closest they came to being part of the zeitgeist was when, their show was ending and you know that so they had had their maximum exposure and that you know articles about the kids are the kids in the hall are now you know leaving the show they're going to make a movie um and unfortunately the movie the movie didn't do well so that kind of was the that was seeming seemed like the end of of them as a as a you know an influential comedy troop but it's it's a funny thing there i feel you know in, re- in reading about them and watching them in interviews and that kind of thing I, it feels like adversity and being uh counted out is kind of like fuel for them you know had they been more successful they may have not been as successful in their in their creative endeavors you know had they had mainstream financial and and no and notoriety and that kind of thing that kind of success the I think the art might have suffered. One part of the podcast in particular that I found really interesting was how you 
got into the relationship between the members and how it always wasn't so uh, sunshine and rainbows. There was some real dynamics of tension at points between between the members. And yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, they're notorious for fighting. It seemed like their process, like if they weren't fighting, something was wrong in the process. So they formed from two groups. So there was the Kids in the Hall, which was um, which was Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald and a few other guys. And there was another uh, troupe from Calgary called The Audience. And that was where Mark McKinney and Bruce uh, McCullough came from. And the audience eventually migrated to Toronto because, you know, they they felt like they had done what they could in Calgary. They started performing with the kids in the hall and they started performing kind of on a double bill and they started kind of meshing together as a group. And I think I think it was Dave that said, you know, it was a it was a troupe that no one auditioned for. They They were just kind of the last standing of these two sketch groups that came together. And, you know, people would quit because there was too much conflict or they would quit because they got a writing job on a award show or something. And so it was eventually the four of them left. And then Scott discovered them, uh, you know, just as a as an audience member and and was determined, like, I want to be in that in that troupe. And eventually he got in the troupe of, you know, performing with with them as a as a guest member. Um, so basically you had these two sensibilities the the Dave Foley the Kevin McDonald sensibility and the Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney sensibility and then Scott who you know a, apart from from being the the only gay member was also just like a, as they describe a, a wild man so so they they have these three sensibilities essentially mashing together and they didn't work the same they respected each other's work but they didn't work the same um, and they didn't write together as a group of five they would bring their pieces together and they just and you know they describe the writing process as basically you try to get your stuff as tight as possible because if it wasn't good or it wasn't up to snuff you'd be teared apart torn apart in the room so i think it was one of these like great art coming out of conflict uh, and they didn't know how to do it any other way um they were guys that grew up at, from grew up in broken homes um, if you watch their sketches, like so many of them are just <laughs> like, if they weren't funny, they'd be very depressing portraits of suburban life, <laughs> um, you know, like vacant or, uh, you know, um, um, angry dads and, and clueless moms and, you know, and that's how they grew up. I think, I think it's something like four of them had alcoholic fathers and, and Mark's father was, was cold and distant. I think that's how it is. So. So, you know, they came out of conflict and, and they conducted themselves through conflict. It seemed like every high was because of conflict and every low was because of conflict. And there's that great scene that you recount where they're auditioning for SNL and you you can just feel through your storytelling that they all don't care about the group in that moment. They're all out for themselves and it becomes sort of uh, the demise of them in that moment. And then, you know, only two of them get selected to be writers on SNL. The, the group falls apart. So it's just, it's funny how the juxtaposition of them, their tension at their height and their tension at their lowest is like, 
it breaks them and makes them. Yeah, and and I think that goes back to this idea of they're they're the survivors of these true troops coming together, not so much people that chose to be together in a way. They kind of ended up together. So so yeah, when they're when they're separated to uh you know, when Mark and Bruce go to write for SNL and the others go to work at um Second City, they're weaker apart, but somehow they they don't appreciate the fact that their strength is as a as a group. I think I think in recent years, I think since, since you know the 2000s when they started doing periodic uh, live tours and stuff, it seems like they they get that what they have is special. But it's still funny like if you if you go back through all the DVD special features which, you know, is another was another one of the resources for this uh, podcast. There's one commentary or one set of interviews that they do where Bruce isn't there and it becomes clear through the conversation that Bruce isn't there because they got in a fight. And so it's for, so they came together to do a commentary for a box set of their show and Bruce isn't there because they got in a fight. And so he'll never be on that commentary just because they got in a fight that day. So, so I think it's just, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the dynamic. It's also, you know, one of the reasons that's what the, the next episode that's coming out is about is about brain candy and it's another one where dave dave started getting opportunities in america and that caused tension within the group because again one of them was singled out pulled out of the pulled out of the group and uh and uh it just didn't sit well with the rest of them because you know they had this movie to make as well so why wasn't dave paying attention to the movie that they were going to make oh i can't wait for that one that'll be fun can we bring the CBC into the conversation a little bit? I'm curious, you know, the kids in the hall ultimately changed the way the CBC functioned in terms of, I, I don't know how to, what to call it, but adult time versus um, child time. Oh, you're talking about the, the splitting pride time. Splitting yeah, yeah. prime time. Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if they still do this. Um, I'd be curious to know if they still do this, but Basically, from my understanding was that, so the Kids in the Hall was on at nine o'clock on Friday nights. And my understanding is that they were, were getting so many complaints about the content of that show that Ivan Feekin, who was the head of programming and the, the brass of the CBC decided like, all right, well, you know, we have a, we have a show that's, um, that has an audience here. It's starting to get noticed in in america like i said it was a co-production between hbo and cbc and by this time they had had emmy nominations so they had emmy nominations for for writing so you know a show with any sort of american recognition is like a is like a jewel right in canada it's like oh well america likes it so <laughs> so it's got to be good you know um so regardless of what the kids in the hall ratings were doing or whatever, it, it had this kind of, you know, special, special fairy dust on it from HBO being one of the producers and then, or one of the funders and then also the Emmy nominations. So they didn't want to get rid of it. Uh, Ivan Feekin liked the show. He had been a, a fan of the kids since the, the mid eighties when he saw them performing live and he was, you know, among the people that was there scouting them for SNL. So they came up with this compromise, which was, yeah, splitting, splitting primetime into two categories. So there was from 7 to 9 p.m., it was family primetime. So, you know, that would be when you would watch, you know, Road to Lee or uh, Degrassi High or anything like that after 9 p.m. So 
uh, nine to eleven or beyond uh, was adult prime time. So that's when you know you could start to see a, a you know a little nudity. You could have more adult situations, or you could have swearing. And I think in the in the podcast, one of the things I highlight is the uh, TV movie uh, Degrassi schools out. Um, I remember this from a kid. As a kid, um, I would have been ten years old or so. But I remember distinctly that show starting at 8 p.m. And you and it was just like a normal Degrassi movie. You know, Joey, the, the school's out. They're they're done school. They're out for the summer. They have jobs. Joey's working at a pharmacy or something. Like It's all normal, normal. And then at the 9 o'clock mark is when they started you dropping the F word and like people start sleeping together and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, oh, okay. Well, this to, to me, like thinking back to this moment, it was the is the, it was the crystallization of what that policy was was the airing of schools out. Um, so yeah, so that's how they dealt with uh, with the kids and other stuff like Codco and other sketch programs that came out uh, came out in the wake of the Kids in the Hall. Um, Amazing. That's it's such an interesting story, and I and I do I have the same question: Are we still doing that on CBC? I suspect that even if we're not expressly, that it became uh, a conscious choice probably in, in when they're selecting their programming. In terms of then putting, you made this podcast, it's amazing, you put it into the world. What has your process been like in terms of like getting it distributed, getting people to listen to it, you know, your marketing efforts, like what, what's the back end of putting this out into the world been like? Well, I, I haven't... Um... I haven't put a lot into marketing, frankly. Before doing a big marketing push, I wanted to have one series out. So that was part of the strategy was, you know, put it out. It will be advertised on our social media. But apart from that, I'm not going to do a big marketing push because essentially it's a, it's a learning series. Like I said, if you listen to episode one to the next episode, um, there's a huge just quality and everything um, uptick. I didn't want people's first encounter with the show to be during that learning phase one of the things that as a podcaster in terms of distribution stuff i did it through anchor i don't know if you've if you've used that service but what i like about anchor is that i can change things without like i can i can slot things in or move them around within the episode if i need to um, I can change out my commercials if I want to, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really super user friendly, and also I can, you know, I can I can post it at Anchor and it posts it on everywhere else. Um, so just in terms of like the brass tacks of podcasting, it's one of these kind of one of these things where the the service does that stuff for me. But in terms of of marketing, it's gonna sound it's gonna sound silly, but the, where I've seen my upticks in listenership has just been in being uh consistent um like i said there was a there was a there was a gap between i think episode two and three or maybe three and four i can't remember and it was a long gap and it was purely it was purely covid related it was it was you know having a child at home so having no place to record no time to write any of that stuff and you know you saw i i saw you know a dip of interest but the minute i started posting episodes again regularly i can see those numbers climbing every day um which has been really nice so you know uh, just in terms of podcasting talk being consistent i'm sure you find the same your and and your podcast comes out more often than mine does mine's every two weeks um so i'm sure you see gains every day 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I post every week on Wednesday. I really try to post come hell or high water. Um, but I don't have a child in my house. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, we, and we do different things too, right? Interviews, interviews are different than a composition too. So, so it's, for me, it's, yes, I want the quiet time to be able to record, but I also, I also need, you know, several days to write something, let alone research something. So it's, it's a little bit of a, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a different offering. That's all that's, but that's why I do it every two weeks. Uh, cause it would just be too much work. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, like when you think about those guys at Wondery, they have a full team of people who are, you know, writing the episodes, yeah. people who are producing the episodes and then editing on the, uh, the back end, because I'm sure that your editing is, is pretty heavy. Also, maybe it's slightly mitigated by the fact that you're, uh, in control of the narrative, you've scripted it. Whereas I try to cut every, um, that I hear. So you'd be surprised to know how long it takes me to edit my episodes. I can't, uh, I can't lie. It's not a quick process. <laughs> yeah, no, for me, for me, it's the record and it's the, uh, I'm, I'm not a natural, like I'm not a, a natural, um, presenter that, I mean, my, my partner and my, uh, co-producer the other at the last time we were recording I was really having a tough time I was just I was I was it wasn't coming naturally and she she said to me I can see you hate yourself right now (laughs) 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 and I can hear it in your voice (laughs) so so for me the the editing is actually faster than the recording (laughs) that's why I feel like you're being way too hard on yourself because honestly you've got the perfect voice for it even when I first started listening I thought you had a great voice for for the podcasting space so well thank you just got to give yourself a bit more credit (laughs) (laughs) so um I'm wondering for those people who are listening who are interested in putting out a podcast if you have any uh tips for them for uh producing uh, producing a show that is so highly produced because it's it's tough yeah my advice would be to bank your episodes um so it was something that I knew intellectually uh I should be doing but it was one of those things that uh I honestly had I think you would describe it as writer's block on the first one or some sort of like failure to launch on the first episode that I just I needed to produce an episode put it out and give myself that that responsibility that there needs to be another one to follow it so now that I've, I've started, I feel a little bit more comfortable to take, you know, a few, a few weeks and just focus on the writing part. Um, I probably will still record like one a week or something rather than record them all in a bunch. But the writing is so intense um, and so unpredictable too. Like, I, I, you know, I can write really fast, but it has to be in a certain um, like set of, uh, circumstances so you know sometimes sometimes you know you're feeling it you're feeling you know you have the story in your head and you can really it's almost like you're transcribing what's in your head or sometimes you're really you know you're really struggling to knock it out but mm-hmm. you know running a business and and having a child and having a partner and and covid and all that is everything's so unpredictable that you can't i can't say like oh i'm gonna have four hours to write tomorrow because i don't know so there's also also, the groove that I've gotten in is um, there's a 
there's a pub down the road and I go, I, my wife says, all right, are you going to write tonight? It's like, yes. And I'll go, I'll have two pints, do some writing. Um, <laughs> and I can usually come out with some pages, uh, you know, I'll come out with, you know, three or four pages at the end of a, at the end of a writing session, which is, which is good. Cause each episode is 15, 15, 16 pages of, of, um, script, script format. But it's not the way to do it. Like I said, if, you know, if you're starting a podcast that's as production heavy as as um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, bank your episodes. I would say bank five episodes, because it's gonna the writing process is gonna take a long time. And if you're like me, the recording process is gonna take a really long time too. <laughs> well, I think I think it's good advice to be honest. Even with with my podcast too, I banked episodes before I started. Because sometimes you have this idea in your head about what you think the show is going to be. Um, for obviously for you, you're writing it, and so you you have that. But I'm sure it's the same process of you know what type of show am I actually developing? You know what am I doing? And I even though I'm not writing out my episodes, finding my mission statement and my ethos to you know it takes a couple episodes to get your groove to understand you know what's feasible also and what your show's going to end up being. Yeah. And I think, and I think that was one of the advantages of doing it week to week with this first series was that, um, had I written, had I written it all in advance, I may have ended up with a bunch of scripts that were not quite the show I wanted to make. Whereas if I was, I was being more reactive to the, each episode that I was making, I was able to kind of tweak it as I, as I went along. Like I said, though, we'll see. I, I mean, I haven't even started writing the Cronenberg one, so we'll see how, how quickly that one comes together. It's a very different topic. It's a different set of media I have to take in. And it's been a while since I've watched his work, too. It was one of these things when I was doing my uh, bachelor's degree. I watched a lot of Cronenberg and, and for, for that uh, period of my life. But uh, it will be fun to revisit and watch that, you know, the stuff from the 70s and the stuff in the 80s, because that's all I'm focusing on, too, is, is 70s and 80s. Cronenberg stopping at the fly. I'm looking forward to it. That's fun. Something to look forward to for season two for us listeners. So I have one final question. Can you recommend a piece of Canadian content that we should all go check out? Oh, I know. Nahani. Nahani is, it's it's an NFB documentary about a guy, an old man who every year tries to make his way up the Nahani to find the gold that's storied to be at the end of of the the river but the river is always so intense that he never makes it it's a documentary from i want to say the 50s maybe the 60s nfb yeah i'll say nahani check it out i'm sure it's on the on the uh nfb website oh awesome well thank you for those wonderful recommendations and thank you for coming on the podcast this was really fun and everybody needs to now go check out once upon a time in hollywood north uh, to learn more about the kids in the hall thank you